This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Today's episode is another installment of Make Remake. It's where we take a movie and its remake and compare the two. Not to see which way is necessarily better or worse, but to see how two movies can tell the same story both similarly and differently. In the past, we have paired such films as Dune, 1984, The Invisible Man, and others. On today's show, we are considering the 1957 Akira Kurosawa film Throne of Blood and the 2021 Joel Cohen film The Tragedy of Macbeth. Both are adaptations of the William Shakespeare play Macbeth, first performed in around 1606. The Scottish play is one of the most popular productions to be put on and has been put on film at least 30 times, either directly through an adaptation or taking segments from it. Akira Kurosawa took the original play that took place in 11th century Scotland and changed the setting to 400 years later in feudal-era Japan in the 16th century. Originally, Kurosawa wanted to make the film in the late 40s, but when he heard that Orson Welles was making a version of Macbeth, he put it on the shelf for almost a decade. The film was released by the production company Toho, best known for the original Godzilla franchise, and it ended up being the highest-grossing Toho film of 1957. The exteriors were shot on Mount Fuji to give the production a sense of vastness and to use the natural forests and fog. Kurosawa was heavily influenced by the Japanese theater style of No, with the actors using the style of movement synonymous with the style, along with incorporating the set design, costumes, and makeup of No. Joel Cohen has been working with his brother, Ethan, since they were children. They made their debut film Blood Simple back in 1984 and have worked together ever since. The tragedy of Macbeth marks the first time one of the brothers have worked separately. According to their longtime composer Carter Burwell, Ethan Cohen at the moment doesn't want to make movies anymore and is instead focusing on other kinds of projects. This allowed Joel to work alone for the first time. He cast his wife and longtime collaborator Frances McDormand and Denzel Washington as the leads and filmed the entire movie on sound stages and in black and white. The adaptation is more or less a straightforward retelling of the story, albeit with a few unique spins on the story. The film was released by A24 in theaters and on Apple TV+. This will not be a part of our A24 retrospective, as Rachel and I are eventually going to come back to the film when we get to it in chronological order down the line, when it then will be a part of our A24 retrospective. For anyone that doesn't know the general story of Macbeth, it is about a general who, after defeating a traitor in war, comes across witches who tell Macbeth that he will receive a promotion and eventually become king. His companion Banquo is told that his son will become king after Macbeth's reign. Once things in the prophecy start to come true, Macbeth's wife, Lady Macbeth, starts encouraging her husband to put plans in motion to fulfill his destiny, eventually becoming king. So, this is a very famous play turned into movies. We've all seen this before, whether it's, you know, your high school production or going to see it in the theaters, whether it's Stratford or somewhere else, and of course the many, many adaptations of it on screen. Originally, we were going to have friend of the show, Sebastian Hines, come on as he would be a perfect guest for this. He's, he's been an actor on Stratford. Uh, he has plenty of experience working with the Shakespearean text, and I thought he would be a good uh, guest to have on for this. Unfortunately, the scheduling didn't line up, so he's not going to be here today, although we are going to steal probably a few of his ideas as he sent through some of that. But... I have you today, Rachel, to talk about this, and I'm very excited. Uh, this was a movie, Tragedy of Macbeth, I've been looking for for a long time, ever since they announced it, and I am already a big fan of Throne of Blood, but I'm curious, you had never seen Throne of Blood. How did these two movies work for you? Very well. 
both of them. Like I, I'm, <laughs> I'm really, enjoy, I really enjoy both of them. So I wasn't a huge like Shakespeare person uh, as like in high school. I think that's when most people have their introduction to Shakespeare. I wasn't ever kind of like overly enamored with it. Like I know some people really, really love the writing and the style and that. Um, but Macbeth was the one play that really stuck with me. And it was the only one in high school. I remember actually enjoying having to read and having to do whatever project it was in English class. Um, so when Tragedy of Macbeth was announced, he actually, even before that, there was a version with uh, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard that was from, I want to say 2015. And I remember being really excited for that. And, um, and then when this one was announced and it was Denzel being Macbeth, Francis McDormand being Lady Macbeth, I thought that's the coolest thing ever. And I, th- I remember in the summer, there was only like a black and white still of the two of them. And that's all that we were given. And everyone was so jacked for it, myself included. And then when you, you know, we were talking about what movie we were going to compare, because there's so many remakes, as you said, mm-hmm. um, or not remakes, I shouldn't say adaptations of it. Um, and I was saying like, which one should we, or did you have in mind to do? And you said Throne of Blood. And I looked that one up and I thought that sounds badass, like, like Akira Kurosawa doing a Macbeth adaptation but it's not a straight Shakespearean adaptation. It's just taking the story and putting, you know, the Japanese samurai culture around it. And of course, you know, it's Kurosawa who's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Like that's such a awesome marriage to me. Um, So when we were going to talk about comparing the two, I was really excited for it because, and I, and then thankfully after watching them, they're both amazing. So I, I love that. I like that. It's nice when they make remakes that we both like the both movies are actually really good because sometimes yes. <laughs> one of them is not usually that good. Like, let's be honest. I think the first episode I ever did with you was Rebecca. It was. And it yeah. was like um, the new one wasn't great, let's say. No. <laughs> but obviously, like it's so it's nice that, you know, even a modern adaptation 2021, um, it's still amazing. But that might also just be to the credit of Shakespeare of, you know, such a timeless play and timeless story. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things where, because the text is so strong, it's kind of hard to screw it up unless you have a poorly cast actor. I don't know. I'm just going to throw a name out there. Maybe someone like Keanu Reeves playing a Shakespeare role. How dare you? (laughs) Listen. Whoa. (laughs) Let's, what are we doing here? I've heard his Hamlet in Winnipeg, Manitoba was very highly revered. Thank you very much. Wasn't he in like Much Ado About Nothing though? Yes, he was, and that was really bad. That was there really, we go. Really That's bad. what I'm talking about. <laughs> that, was, that was quite bad. <laughs> co-starring, I believe, Denzel Washington, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The two of them were in it. There we together. go. All comes full circle. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I look at these two movies, and obviously, the plot of Macbeth. You know, I read out the plot description. I think if you're listening to this this episode, you probably know what Macbeth is. It's one of the most famous stories of all times. It would be like mm-hmm. reciting what Romeo and Juliet is or Hamlet is or whatever. It's just one of those stories that even if you, you're not intimately aware of it or haven't seen it, you kind of know the story of it about a guy who sort of gets drunk on power because he hears this prophecy and 
it's, the, it's sort of the argument of free will versus uh, predetermination and, and how that sort of affects your actions. If you know what you're going to become in the future, are you going to work towards it or are you just going to believe that the path that you're currently on will eventually get you into that place? So it's, it's, it's a very interesting story. And it's also really interesting looking at these two movies how I had more notes about the differences, despite the fact that these stories are almost identical, where it gets to the point where you're you're sort of like micro-analyzing, being like, oh, there's there's these very subtle differences, and this is how they're very different. Obviously, you know, the big difference is one is a samurai picture taking place in Japan, and the other one is a very literal stage adaptation filmed. They can't be any more different when you talk about it that way, but they still they, they they hit on the same notes in the truth of the story, and that comes from having such a great base of text. And I think one of the great things about Macbeth, and I mean, you could argue this is Shakespeare in general, is that if you want to look at the layers and it like kind of really dig deep into the text and into you know kind of each what are they called like per, not parameters diameter i don't know anyways um but if you want to really look and and like really really analyze it you get a lot out of it like it's incredibly enriching to do something like that but then at the same time if you just want to take it at face value it's such a cool like action story as well and so i love i like stories that are like that that you can enjoy it on kind of a very very superficial level and then if you choose to kind of keep going and dig deeper into the characters, into the motivations, into the conversations, um, you get so much more out of it. And I, to me that that's like a sign of just really good storytelling. Like you don't necessarily need to sit there and be in deep thought all the time, which some movies can be accused of doing, like kind of overthinking it a little bit um, or others are just kind of mindless popcorn entertainment. Both have their place, but when you can marry the two together, I think that that's like you you've just created something quite magical and it's rare obviously to do something like that. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. My husband, king that shall be. We should fail. We fail. Didst thou not hear noise? So I, I say we, we get started. Let's uh, start things off with things that are done similarity between the two films. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you haven't seen at least one version of Macbeth, not necessarily these ones, but their stage adaptation or what have you, I sort of suggest holding off listening for now because we're not going to go full spoilery, but you know, this is a play that is several hundred years old. If you don't know how this ends by now, then that's sort of on you, I guess. Uh, But yeah, let's, uh, let's start with some similarities. I think the obvious one is that both films were shot in black and white. The first color film made in Japan was actually Carmen Comes Home, which was released in 1951, six years before Throne of Blood. While black and white was still the norm, it was definitely a stylistic choice to make it in monochrome. Much like today, where it is a special occasion to see a film in black and white, Joel Cohen made the choice to shoot the tragedy of Macbeth in that palette. How did both of these films being explicitly in black and white, not being in color work for you? And do you think that sort of added anything to it? Because when I think of the Michael Fassbender version, it's so Mm -hmm. brightly colored. 
And it's so unique in that sense where that would be a very big stylistic difference. How, how do the two similarities of them both being black and white work for you? I like it. Like I think I'm, I'm a big sucker for anything that's done in black and white. And so especially if it's shot purposely in black and white, like a, a bit of a pet peeve of mine is when filmmakers make a film in color and then they transfer it to black and white later. Um, because I feel like that's kind of cheating. Cause when you're shooting a movie in black and white, you can use a lot of, obviously it's a lot of shadows and light. Like that's kind of um, the whole point of shooting in black and white really. And I think Joel Cohen does such a cool job of it in, in making sure like it, like the cinematography in tragedy Macbeth, it was nominated for an Academy award. It's gorgeous because of the way he plays with the shadows and he plays with the light. And then in Akira Kurosawa's version, his is obviously done in film. So it's a similarity, but there's also like a kind of a slight difference between the two as well, where Joel Cohen shot purposely in, in uh, digital because it's much colder when you shoot digitally. And then Akira Kurosawa did it in um, film obviously, because that's what the time was. But it actually made me think a bit about a movie I just watched recently called Odds Against Tomorrow, which is a Harry uh, Belafonte movie. Belafonte. I don't know why I just made it really sound fancy there. But Robert Wise shot that one in black and white as well. And that was done in 1959. And one of the reasons he decided to shoot, it was the last movie he did in black and white in that aspect ratio. And the reason he did it was because he wanted to get like kind of a real gritty raw realism to it. And that reminds me a bit of, or it makes me think anyways, of, of what Akira Kurosawa was kind of going for of getting it really looking quite gritty. Cause there's something about the grain of black and white that is just different that you don't get with color. And I think when you're talking about a character like Macbeth being so grisly, like I always think of Macbeth just being so grisly and very like, worn out of from life and from war and all that kind of stuff and so when you use black and white to to emphasize that character trait of Macbeth I think it works really really nicely yeah I I agree with your sort of comment about films that later turn their their stock into black and white despite being shot in color like I know just recently Nightmare Alley was released mm-hmm. a second time in black and white. And I know Parasite famously was also released in black and white. And that's not something I'm a, I'm really a fan of. I have no real interest in seeing. I'm sure it looks great and it's beautiful. But there's something very specific about going into a filming process, knowing it's in black and white, and having to adjust your, your lighting, the colors that you choose for your set design and your costumes and all that sort of stuff really needs to be thought out and prepared ahead of time. You know, I love Nightmare Alley. It looks so good. And like that color has some very rich yellows and reds and things like that, where I'm sure it looks good in black and white, but the fact that you're removing that, I I think that's a bit of a, I don't want to call it a failure, but it it sort of defeats the entire purpose. Whereas tragedy of Macbeth, they went in knowing it's going to be black and white. And so it was shot accordingly. It was shot like Mm -hmm. a, a German expressionist film. Everything has very hard angles, harsh lighting, things like that, where if that was shot in color and then they tweaked it afterwards, it would look so different. It would be so blown out. The color scheme, the palette would not work. And I think the costume design works with the black and white because it almost looks like everyone is actually wearing gray clothing in that movie yeah. which is so interesting and i think it also works for throne of blood because one obviously uh i said that 
Macbeth was first published in in the 1600s so we automatically think of oh this is this is so old this is this is a very classic time period but then also you have throne of blood which is shot in feudal japan which is a sort of a similar era obviously it's a few hundred years apart but regardless it's still several hundred years ago and mm-hmm. so we think you know way back when this is old school this is this is the color format we're dealing with and obviously you know it's it's funny when you think of like kids asking not anymore, but I guess like when we were young asking our parents what was life like in black and white because, you know, color <laughs> TV hadn't been invented, you know, that sort of thing. Obviously, life when Throne of Blood is taking place was in color, but it's just sort of one of those things where like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Black and white. Yeah, that era makes sense sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, overall, I think it really works for both films and sort of allows you to focus on other things, not just like, ooh, look at the pretty costumes and things like that. It really like highlights angles and structures and the way things are shaped because you have your eyes have less to sort of, you know, be all a glaze over everything. Be like, ooh, look at this very pretty thing. You really have to hyper focus on things to make out what they are. And kind of to add to that, I know we're not doing a make-remake of three movies, but we've already mentioned the Fassbender one, and that's in color, like you said. And But that one's more of like a war epic, almost. Yeah. Like, I always think of it as more, almost born, like it's an action movie, kind of. It's and more Braveheart. Yeah, exactly. It's a great example. And so when you use color in that kind of a movie, it really works because it just it highlights the the violence and the you know the gruesomeness because i think sometimes when you see black and white movies um not to say that you'd need to see the color of blood but it helps right like it it's like kind of when you see it in black and white it takes you out of it a little bit sometimes when when you see blood because it's just a dark stain whereas if it's in color and it's like vibrant it just it feels a bit more visceral i suppose um so it like it depends on i suppose the type of adaptation they wanted to make and so because joel cohen wanted to do it i know we'll get to this aspect of it later of of it being almost like a theatrical setup or uh yeah theatrical setup it's it really plays to that aspect of it of just like it's not necessarily focusing on the violence it's not necessarily focusing on um you know like like you know the the costumes or whatever like you said you're focusing more on the characters and what they're saying and you know their facial expressions so on and so forth yeah and and i think the the blood thing is a really interesting thing because especially in throne of blood there is a room in one of the castles that they say people don't stay in there because it's blood stained and when we, when we mm-hmm. see this room it like it looks really interesting because it's a wooden room and then there's this gigantic black splotch both on the yeah. floor and on the wall and you sort of have to use your imagination of what happened there to make such a big stain. And, and it really sort of like plays with your head because if it was just blood, I feel like it would, it would hit differently. But because it's in black and white, you really have to think about what that means. Definitely. Uh, another, I think, sort of interesting similarity is how water plays an important part in the witch's prophecies in both films. In Throne of Blood, both times the witches are seen, it is during a rainstorm. And in tragedy, the second prophecy sequence makes Macbeth think the room he is in has flooded and the visions are coming up from the water. According to scholars, water in Macbeth is sort of seen as a way of symbolizing guilt, which is obviously a huge theme across the whole story of Macbeth and and how that 
perceives how, how the characters perceive guilt of moving forward to reach their own destiny sort of thing. So I was, I was sort of wondering, did you notice the water as an important aspect when you were watching these movies? Because right away for me, I was watching it and it was obviously very apparent in tragedy of Macbeth during that second prophecy scene, but in, in throne of blood, how often rainstorms play an important part in telling of the story and setting the mood. Did that work for you? Yes, and partly because um, spe- specifically about Throne of Blood, kind of linking it back to the black and white conversation we were just having. I love seeing rainfall in black and white. I think it just has, it looks different. Like it just looks, I don't even know what it looks like. I don't even know how to describe it because it kind of looks distorted in a sense. Like, um, you know, old school TVs, uh, when you have the black and white distortion, like that graininess, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Um, but you know what's funny is that like I saw your note about water being a sign of guilt. I always associate water with being like purity, you know, like they, people always consider that, you know, you wash, wash away the sins, your sins or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. So in my head, water is always associated with something clean and pure. And so the idea of it being a sign of guilt, I thought about that um, when I read your note on it, because I just thought that's such an interesting, cause it's, kind of almost the complete opposite because you're using, I suppose it's connected because you're using the water to clean away your guilt, but in the way that they use it, like the water is flooding um, the room in tragedy of Macbeth and the constant rain in throne of blood, which the characters remark too, saying like this is really funny weather that we've been having recently. Like this is kind of weird. Um, and it's just so, such constant, constant rain. So it's like the idea of, it's like too much purity almost, or like you, you need so much of that water to cleanse away all of the bad crap that you got up to because, um, you know, and that, that is a sense your guilt. Is that kind of the reading of it? Is that like, is that what I'm saying? Correct. Yeah. I I sort of look at it almost of like, you're drowning in it. You know, it's no longer there to wash away. It's you're drowning. It is so all encompassing. Right. That's really interesting. I love that yeah. though. I, I really like, you know, again, like I said, when you can dig deep into something like that aspect of it, like I, I find that really fascinating to look at. Um, do you have a, I know we don't do preferences, but like, do you think both of them were as effective in showing that sign of guilt? Or do you think that like tragic Macbeth, cause it literally was a room drowning. Was that more effective? For you? Yeah, I think it was probably a little bit more effective in Tragedy of Macbeth, just the way mm-hmm. they symbolized it. Obviously, you know, this big scene that we're talking about is his second prophecy vision when he meets the second time he meets the witches. And he had been hallucinating the night before, and Lady Macbeth had drugged him to go to sleep. And it's sort of, I think the reading of that scene is that it is sort of a drug induced vision because mm-hmm. it's obviously not really happening. His room is not actually being flooded. So it it sort of hits a little bit differently when you know that it's him basically tripping of uh, and you have like these spectrals coming up from the water of who would succeed him afterwards of being king and all this sort of stuff. So I think it's just a little bit more effective because I don't want to say it's more on the nose, but it's definitely more explicit in the meaning. Yeah, and I suppose it makes... Like, like you said, more on the nose, but it makes it just kind of, it punctuates that specific scene. Whereas in Throne of Blood, it's just not constantly raining, but like it happens throughout the movie versus just one time. 
um, there's like a big rainfall. Like I think it happens, what I want to say two, two or three times, I think in the movie that there's just like massive, massive amounts of rain coming down. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's at the, at the beginning and then uh, about halfway, I guess closer yeah. to the end it happens. Yeah. yeah. But elements really play a big part in, in throne of blood, uh, which is something we're going to kind of talk about in the next half when, when, the decision to shoot that on a mountain comes into play. Is there anything that you kind of want to point it out as some, some similarities? Yeah. One thing I'm going to steal it from Sebastian's notes, but it was also, I, I will say I did kind of notice it. I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit here, uh, but it was about like the score, you know, the score and just the sound maybe is maybe that's a bit more accurate thing to say in both of these movies are so pronounced and, almost necessary in the movie i think you know like in tragedy of macbeth there's a lot of i i really like the sound design in tragedy of macbeth i think that there's because the the palaces or the castle is meant to be very echoey and so it has that sound that that kind of reverberation off of like the cold walls the steely walls um but the actual score in macbeth is also very very overwhelming and whereas throne of blood um you've got sound again being really really important but it's almost more of the you know kind of carrying on from what we're talking about the rain it's more of like the elements it's the nature it's the sound like the howling of the wind um it plays a really really big part into it and and they also have a great score as well like one that takes over but for me it's the sound of you know, kind of the rustling in in the in the forests and things like that that that's what really takes over for throne of blood yeah, that I agree too. Uh, I, I think that the sound design is so excellent in both of them, for for very different reasons. Like you were talking about there, Throne of Blood. It's it seems so magical at times, especially mm-hmm. the scenes with the witch, where it has this real otherworldliness to it, where the the sounds that you're hearing don't sound like they're actually emanating from the source they come from. And it, it has to do also with the fact that clearly whatever voice manipulation they're doing to the witch, mm-hmm. because it's, it's played by an older woman, but her voice kind of sounds very masculine and has this real foreboding, basically vocoderness to it, which obviously was not a thing back then. So they did some sort of manipulation to her voice to be able to create, create that effect. And then you like, like you were talking about the, the rustling and the crinkling and all that sort of stuff in the background of the forest just didn't quite sound natural. And it really kind of messes with your head a bit. Mm -hmm. And then of course, on the flip side of tragedy of Macbeth is they, they Cohen really does a great job of marrying the theatrical with the film and so we get stuff that if it's happening on screen, it's it, we're, we assume it's basically practical, but he takes a filmmaker's approach to it where it obviously isn't. So Sebastian pointed out stuff like Foley, which is, a, is what you do to make sound effects, uh, not in studio, because in studio you need to be as quiet as possible when you're filming because you don't want to ruin the sound over someone's talking. So you make the sound effects of someone, you know, stepping on leaves and cracking branches and things like that afterwards. Um, so yeah, they, I think that they, they a really interesting job of sort of marrying those two worlds together to create its own unique sound landscape, whereas Throne of Blood also had its own very unique palette too. Absolutely. And one other thing I want to talk about in terms of similarities is, and it, it's obvious, it seems like it's a really obvious thing, but it's Lady Macbeth's, um, the out damned spot, um, 
scene, soliloquy section, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) I always find it interesting that even though like throughout all of the different adaptations, obviously Tragedy of Macbeth is a more direct Shakespearean adaptation in terms of the language that they use. And Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, it's not, he's not precious about sticking exactly to what was prescribed in Shakespeare's text, which I think is really cool. And I think that that's kind of what makes it work a bit. But I, I love that the one thing, not the one thing, but like one thing that they, they keep. And I think it's, speaks to I I suppose how powerful and how prolific that scene is they always keep that like no matter what kind of adaptation there is you have that one specific scene for Lady Macbeth and it's the same movements you know with the hand and all that kind of stuff and I know for me as again as being somebody who's quite a bit of a novice when it comes to Shakespeare that's always been when I think of Shakespeare, that's the the scene that I think of the most. That's the thing that I associate with Shakespeare almost the most, because not only is it a scene that's given to a woman, like quite a powerful scene and, and lines given to a woman, but it's, it's really, I don't want to say it's mental because that sounds really inappropriate, but like, it's just, it's really all encompassing powerful. Like it's really crazy the way and it gives whatever actress is taking on Lady Macbeth, um, it give that's kind of their moment. That's the thing that they focus on the most. Yeah, I'm gonna. I guess we this isn't supposed to really be a review episode, but I I found that that scene in Tragedy of Macbeth didn't work for me as well as it has. I'd in agree other with you. Yeah, Macbeth productions, and I'm gonna reference two different podcasts here. First is uh, on Classic Movies Live. They did an episode uh, talking about Anna Kendrick musicals, and they brought on this guest, Ben, who was talking about how certain musicals, when an audience goes to see it, they are very interested to see how this cast or this particular actor will interpret a song. And so they're talking about the movie The Next Five Years, which I've never seen either the play or the, the movie. And they're talking about how there is this, you know, really key song and audiences are always interested to see how will the actress perform this song and make it her own and sort of mm-hmm. bring it to life. And and that's something that we sort of also get with Shakespeare. So, you know, the, the very famous out, out, damn spot. Or if you're going to see Hamlet, you really want to see to be or not to be and how that's going to be played out. And, you know, certain aspects of Romeo and Juliet and whatever Shakespeare play, there's usually at least one moment where you're like, how is the director and the actors going to stage this? And then the other thing I want to reference is film spotting on their review of it. They, they obviously love this movie because it's a fantastic film, but they sort of brought up the fact that if you had never seen Macbeth before, and this was your first time and you don't know the story at all, you haven't seen the play, you haven't read it, you haven't seen other movie versions of it, whatever, and this is the first time you watch it, you'd be sort of caught off guard by that scene because it sort of happens a little too quickly and there isn't a lot of meaning behind it. Obviously, as people who have read it or seen it before, you go in understanding a bit more of the backstory and understanding that you can't fit everything into a movie unless you want to make, you know, a four-hour movie sort of thing. And it sort of feels that they skipped some of the details. And I think they did a better job with uh, Throne of Blood to get to the out-out damn spot scene than they did for Tragedy of Macbeth because it just sort of comes out of nowhere, frankly. And I also think, and this this is, you know, I, I often talk about expectations um, 
being a really crappy thing to bring into movies, um, but you can't help it. And I think for me, it's Frances McDormand. So I'm kind of expecting to be blown out of my seat because it's her. And I would agree with you. Like, I don't think her version of it landed as well. And I'm not saying she was bad in the movie. Obviously she's still Frances McDormand, but I think I was expecting it to be a bit more pronounced, a bit more powerful, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think I, I never thought about the placement of it um, in the film itself, but yeah, that does make sense. Like it does kind of come out of nowhere and it relies on, it's like Jill Cohen relying on audiences knowing the backdrop, like the backstory behind um, why Lady Macbeth is saying this, why she's doing that. Uh, but if you actually were to just take it in a vacuum, it probably is a bit kooky. I didn't think about yeah. that before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some differences. All right, so now we're going to look at the differences between these two movies, which, despite both plays following very closely to the original text, there were some very important differences to make. In fact, I pro- we probably won't even have time to, to really delve into all of them, but I think it's so fascinating how you can take a play of so well-renowned and so well-known and, and do such drastic different things. And I think that's probably why people always come back to Shakespeare, is you can basically take any of his plays and adapt it to modern times, to the, fa- to the past, to the future, whatever, and, and you can find common ground of understanding what the context is. And maybe that's why he's considered one of the greatest writers ever. That's, you know, a nice trick that he's able to do with his work. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, let's, let's talk about some differences. I think the first one we sort of, you know, teased a little bit before was the use of locations are very different. Kurosawa shot on shot the film on an actual mountain to get uh, the play to have a very epic feel to it, while Cohen shot all of it on a soundstage, giving the feel of a heightened theatrical performance, leading to very different looks. What was your take on the the, the ways that these two movies looked? It, they feel quite fitting. Like it, it they kind of make sense. Like I don't know why Tragedy of Macbeth if they had shot that on location in Scotland, like in, I don't know, some Glaswegian ancient castle, I don't feel like it would have hit as much because even though it's in black and white, like I had said before, they shot it in digital. So it does still look kind of modern, even though it's old school, like it it still has that look to it. So the fact that- It's very clean, yeah. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, the set is also clean, the set is also kind of like, uh, like, you know, modern art, like things, something that you'd see at like the Tate Modern in London or some something like that, like art that I don't really understand. It, it's, it makes sense to me. Like it, it just is really fitting. Whereas when Kurosawa is like, he's making it a historical period drama, very, like very clearly it's, it's meant to be historical. And so when you go into, you know, up on Mount Fuji and that's where you're shooting it, it creates a more realistic um, tone to the film. 
which makes sense because he wants to be historically accurate for the time period that his movie, his script is being set in. So it really works for me the way that, uh, that they had done like the two, the, the, the bit of the diversion there. And I, I knew some people who kind of complained about that, that uh, about the tragedy of Macbeth saying, why does it look like that? Like there's nobody there. It just, it doesn't look like a castle. Like I think maybe they were expecting it to be, a bit more realistic, I suppose. But, mm. and and I think that's a bit of a shame to kind of go into it thinking that it's going to be one way. And then even though within the first, what, five, 10 minutes, like it's clear that that's not the kind of movie it's going to be. Um, I think if you can kind of just settle into it and then just let it be what Joel Cohen intended it to be, I think that there's a lot to take from it. So I personally, I think it works very well for like the vision that both of the directors had. Yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I I love the the way that that Joel Cohen set up this film because mm-hmm. yeah, it, it it has such an otherworldliness to it because it looks so fake and artificial, but at the same time, it's so real at the same time. If that if that makes sense or it's even mm-hmm. possible, but whatever it is, he manages to do it because you know there's a few scenes where it's outdoors and we get a nice starry night sky and stuff like that. That's clearly digital and fake. And then, yeah, you get these these buildings in the middle of nowhere just sort of standing there, and they're such wide open, and there's almost no set dressing to them, and, you know, you just got these big columns and things like that, and it just looks so unique and interesting, and there's play, there's, it's simultaneously, you know, it's, it's a full of contradictions, there's nowhere to hide, but everywhere to hide, you know, it's fake, but it's real, it's lived in, but it's artificial, like, there's so many different contradictory statements going on at the same time, but it all works for it as a grand whole. And it reminds me of something of almost something like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, a a favorite Mm. uh, horror film of mine, 1930s German expressionist horror where (laughs) they artificially, I know I'm being very, I like like your favorite horror movie is a German expressionist movie from the 1930s. It is very good though. I'll say it's a very good movie. But you know, that movie is famous for creating you know, these really uh, jagged sets and light shadows painted on the sets that are unnatural. And obviously this movie isn't like that, but there's elements to it where it sort of has that unnaturalness to it that sort of makes a viewer uneasy about what is real and what isn't real. And, you know, on the flip side, obviously with Throne of Blood, using the real locations it may it, it adds so much to it you know i'm a big fan of of kurosawa's movie seven samurai and you know the use of the rain and the dirt and the mud and mm-hmm. the water and all that stuff just like adds so much grime and realness to it where it feels so lived in and you can almost like smell the movie and throne of blood has a very similar aspect to it as well where you know, they're galloping through the woods and it's muddy and it's gross and it looks like their armor weighs a ton. And yeah. then the, at the end with like the arrows coming in, like like Kurosawa is an absolute insane person to allow Toshiro <laughs> Mifune, who plays the, the lead character, to be shot at by real archers. Just baffles my mind you know this this is this is 1950 safety standards i guess in japan yeah he would he would allow his his leading man his number one (laughs) box office star to be shot at by real archers and it works like yeah goddamn does it work but absolute sheer insanity that that kurosawa mifuni did this 
It's absolutely like I that scene is incredible. Like I was watching it, I just thought this is insane. Like yeah. it's just it and it's relentless too. Like it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Um it's one, one of those thing, things though, where you're just like, oh, he's not really acting. That's real. Yeah. <laughs> uh one thing I wanted to pick up on that you were talking about was, you know, how how kind of fake it looks and how um disengaged or not disengaging, but uh what's the word am I looking for? like jarring it can be to your brain yeah. because and i think part of it too is like we always have this discussion about practical effects in movies today and how we want everything to look so real like you know that's one of the reasons people like denis and um chris nolan movies because their special effects are, are are quite real and they use cgi to touch it up whereas when things are cgi it just looks a little bit fake and it's you know unless it's very very good cgi so i love that the idea that that's the era of film that we live in right now when it comes to, especially action movies and science fiction is we're looking for realness. Like we're looking for reality in our films, but Joel Cohen takes goes completely the other way. And I, and I like when, you know, an artist does that, like every, everybody's going one way and he just says, no, I'm going to go completely against the grain and make something that maybe in the thirties was more common and something like that. But today it's just so um, discombobulating for your brain to see something like that, because we're just so, you know, conditioned at this point to see realistic depictions of characters and stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's so, it's so funny that the realness of it looks fake to us, (laughs) Yeah, but it works because it's, it's a beautiful set and and it really sort of feels like if you ever go to the theater and sometimes they'll have like special event screenings of you know Stratford productions or Mm -hmm. Royal British theater productions of these classic plays and it's just so elaborate and you just and you know how hard people work to to build these sets and to make these costumes and to do the you know the props and all that sort of stuff, how much time and energy goes into making it look as realistic as possible that you can for a stage. And that's the sort of feeling that Joel Cohen goes for. Obviously you would need a stage a mile long to be able to actually watch this in a real theater, but you look at it and you're like, I can see these stages, this castle, this house. I can see this on a stage. If I went to Stratford, I could probably see something similar to this. And that's what's so interesting and unique to it. And the cool thing is, is, you know, a lot of people give stage (coughs) adaptations or sorry, movie adaptations of stage productions. They give it a bit of flack for being like, it looks too much like a stage production. You know, like they're saying, I I heard people talk about like, uh, what was that movie? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And we were like, it's too stagey. I think you might have actually been one of those I I felt that way. Yeah. (laughs) So it like, I think the cool thing of what Joel Cohen does in this one is, Yes, it's very stagey. It's very theatrical in that sense. But he does things with the camera that wouldn't have been possible um, on a stage. Like I'm thinking specifically of the shot of like the three witches overhead um, Mm. on the beams. It's like you could you could have that on a stage. Obviously, you can you can you can have that production, but you won't get that angle and you won't get that kind of the isolation of just us being able to see only that. And that for me, that's like one of my favorite shots in the, in the whole thing. And I, like, I think that that's what is part of the brilliance of what Cohen did because yes, it's stagey and it's theatrical, but it's still incredibly cinematic what he did. Yeah. 
I, I absolutely agree. I it, it's a weird thing. I also think of maybe something from earlier this year, uh, human the humans, mm, um, yeah. where that's also a, a adaptation of a play where it felt way too stagey for me. And it's that weird balance of you you want uh, you want a play that's been adapted to look unique and be its own thing, but also you want elements of why it was so successful in the first place. And for some reason stuff like Ma Rainey's Black Bombs and stuff like The Humans just really don't work for me because it almost seems like they're trying too hard to be both at the same time without really leaning into one or the other, whereas Tragic Macbeth really leans into this is a stage production that we're f- sort of filming, but I-, I am able to do my own flair, but this is a stage production regardless. I mean, that's I mean that's just all credit to Joel Cohen, right? Like, not everybody is... Yeah. <laughs> He, he's a great director as much as I'm not the biggest fan of the Coen brothers movies, but like there's no denying that he, him and, and his brother, like they're, they're amazing directors. So I get the criticism for movies like the humans and Ma Rainey's black bottom, but it's like, it's clear it's a difficult job. Like it's insanely difficult to do. And it takes somebody with Joel Cohen's talent, but also his experience. Like this is, I don't know how many movies have they all done together. Like has he directed even with his brother? Um, And, and like, that's what, that's what comes of it, you know, to do something a bit later on in your career, as big as this, uh, which you could also say for Francis and for Denzel actually too. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, So let's move on to maybe some other topics because we've got lots of discussion still to do. Uh, The final prophecy I find focuses on two different things. We're really going to get into some spoilers here. But in Throne of Blood, the main reason why uh, Washizu, which is the Macbeth character in that movie, believes he's invincible is that he won't lose a battle until the forest moves and reaches the castle. Where in Tragedy of Macbeth, includes the forest bit, but also that Macbeth shall be harmed by no man born of a woman. Which is a pretty big plot point in the play. Because, you know, the no man born of a woman, so he gets cocky and thinks that no man can ever kill him. When in reality, what happens is the person who ends up killing Macbeth is someone who was born via C-section. And I I believe the line was ripped from my mother's womb or something like that Mm -hmm. uh, in the actual text. So it's just sort of interesting how they sort of focus on two different things. And we talked about the ending of Throne of Blood ends with this barrage of arrows raining <laughs> down on Washizu, the Tishiro Mifune character, and that's how he dies. Whereas that's a complete invention by Kurosawa, because in the text, Macbeth goes and actually has a sword fight where I wish I had the the notes up in front of me, but I believe it's, it's Banquo's son who ends up killing Macbeth because he's the one who was born not born of a woman, and and so that's how he's able to become king. And it's sort of interesting because the, even then it sort of changes. Well, despite the fact that he's the one who kills Macbeth, uh, it ends up being the king's son who becomes king again, which is a uh, which is sort of an interesting concept because that's also unique to uh, this movie adaptation as well. So both movies sort of definitely take their liberties with how they want to interpret the ending. I find like it I think this is this is about you know kind of Shakespeare's language where because tragedy of Macbeth is 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 done and performed in the Shakespearean way it makes like it's a bit more artistic it's a bit more eloquent whereas if you had just said it kind of in the way that you know you just did you know imagine if they had just said well I was born by a C section 
it doesn't really have the same weight as saying like I was ripped from my mother's womb. Like there's something, uh, you know, different. And I wonder, like, obviously we don't know, but I wonder if that's where Kurosawa realizes like maybe without saying it in the way that Shakespeare had written it, does it lose a bit of its edge um, and kind of becomes like a, yeah, okay. Oh, like plot twist c-section you know whereas (laughs) and and whereas if you use the language that is actually written it just sounds a bit more poetic do you know what i mean like i wonder if that's why kurosawa because i mean like i said he he doesn't stick exactly to shakespeare's story he like he does change things around which i think is is um interesting and this is probably one of the bigger points of what he changed but i wonder if that had anything to do with it like because if he knew you're losing something by not using Shakespeare's language. Yeah, I I agree. And it's it, it sort of allows Kurosawa to sort of be like, this is a loose adaptation of the story because mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that he doesn't have to use the, the original language and he can change it around a bit, it works for him. I think also the fact that it's not in English, and I don't think yeah. you could probably do a one-to-one translation from english to japanese to keep the iambic pentameter of the exact cadence and tone that it has it's almost easier to be like look we're just lifting the story and then i'm adding my own things in order to uh make this film work yeah and like that's how adaptations successful adaptations work right like not being overly prescriptive about your source material and kind of just creating your own thing um, not every director is able to do something like that and or do it successfully, I should say. Um, and again, like similar to how we were just praising Joel Cohen, I mean, all of the praise to Akira Kurosawa as well, because it's not an easy thing to say, I'm going to take the story of Macbeth and adapt it to Japanese culture and the Japanese language. Um, but I'm going to do it a bit in my own way because it won't work. It will lose a lot of um, the impact that it had in English by doing it in Japanese. That's really interesting mm-hmm. to me, like changing it from, yeah. from different languages. Another thing I want to kind of talk about is the use of not being able to have a child is sort of a central theme in the original play as the Macbeths don't have an heir. So after Macbeth died, a different family would rule, assuming that uh, Macbeth isn't beheaded and uh, someone takes over the country sort of thing. In this idea of you produce an heir and they become the king after you. And your family rules forever in perpetuity. But in Throne of Blood, Lady Washizu gets pregnant after coming to rule, but eventually has a stillbirth, which leads to her losing her mind in the infamous out damn spot scene that we were referencing earlier. When the casting of Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand were announced, who are 67 and 64 respectively, it sort of came with a note that they were these characters were unable to conceive a child and at this age are now too old to create an heir. Unfortunately, the film ended up cutting out that plot entirely, but I think it could still be read as a viewer because you can look at it as, you know, maybe they, they didn't want to have a child when they were younger or they didn't uh, believe they had the means to do so. And then suddenly now that they're royalty and they have uh, a place to live, uh, in this nice castle and everything is is taken care of for them, it would make more sense for them to try to have an heir in order to keep these things in their family. But obviously you look at someone 
people in their 60s and you understand more specifically a woman in her 60s cannot get pregnant at that age anymore and so she can't have a child so it's sort of i i would have really loved it if this movie sort of touched on that aspect a bit more and i think it would have made more sense much like how in throne of blood the stillbirth causes lady washizu to sort of lose her mind and lead to the out damn spot thing because it was such a traumatic event i think something would have been interesting where they tried to do that in tragedy of Macbeth. Maybe it was some sort of, you know, immaculate conception or something like that. I don't know what, <laughs> how that would work out or some sort of witch's prophecy where they're able to incorporate that. It just would have been a lot more interesting to look at it because this idea of casting older actors, I thought was a fascinating idea and they didn't really do anything with that. So it's, it's interesting you say that because I think it goes back to kind of one of the first points that I was talking about where Macbeth is an interesting play because you can either just look at it kind of more superficially or then like if you want to if you choose to dive into it like in the way that you're talking about you can get a little bit more out of it because that point like like you said I agree with you I was very very interested when I heard they're casting two older people in their um uh, in the two main roles because it for me it lends a bit of desperation almost like you're right they don't talk about why it is that they didn't have a kid up up until then like was it because um you know lady macbeth was unable to have children like or i shouldn't just put it on her the two of them were unable to make a child together (laughs) was it a choice that they made that they said they didn't want to have kids um for whatever reason but the way i were unable to have kids yeah like the way i read it is it it's like it added to the desperation that they had in the end where they're really faced with the idea now of, look, we're not having an heir here. Like this is not happening for the two of us. Cause it's regardless of what our fertility issues were when we were younger, like we are at a stage in our lives where that's not happening. Um, and so this is the way that we're going to be remembered. This is the last ditch attempt that we have to make a name for ourselves because we don't have a legacy to leave behind to do something with our name. It's either us or nothing at this point. And so I love that idea of that's what's been gnawing at, you know, Macbeth for all for the last however many years you want to take it. And that's what is driving him to do what he does in it. And it's not just about, cause I think when you have younger actors, there is a sense of it's, it's hubris. It's them just wanting glory. It's them just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a fancy title. I want to be King. But when you add in this aspect of they're older, they don't have an heir. This is it. Like they're either going to be remembered as King or they won't be remembered at all. And that's, what's driving him or that both of them. And then the other thing I think is really cool about, them being a bit older is I think it touches on the relationship between King and Lady Macbeth, because like you said, you know, it's, it, yes, mostly true that at the age of 60 plus, they're not going to have children, but very specifically, it is something um, more on the female side that women Mm -hmm. can't have children after they have go through menopause. So there is that. And, and then, you know, King Macbeth, if he really, really wanted a, an heir, he could have, gotten a younger you know and tried with her you know tried to have a baby in that sense um but i i thought it was kind of a beautiful love story in a sense or like a little kind of romance line there of 
the two of them are just so in love with each other and that they only see they like it's kind of the two of them like ride or die as the kids say today um (laughs) and he's not willing to go try with another woman step outside their marriage for that it's the two of them and if they can't have an heir fine so be it he's not going to do that with another woman even if it's something that gnaws at him even if it's something that he desperately wants um he's not even going to attempt it like i mean we don't know for sure but that was my reading of it because again they didn't really tell us one way or the other yeah i i think it's definitely something that as a viewer, you're probably either going to bring maybe your own experiences, depending on your age or past, to the reading. It's just something that I sort of wish they had made a little bit more explicit, talking about what they want the themes mm-hmm. to be for them being a bit of an older couple of why they were why they were chosen specifically Washington and McDormand to be cast in this movie. And and I know there probably was a reason. Maybe it was cut. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, it's just something I, I would have hoped for maybe a bit more, but there wasn't wasn't actually there. That's Not fair. that it really hinders the movie for me. It just would have been, I think it would have added a bit more subtext to it. And also, like I was saying, with the out damn spot scene, I think that would have made a little bit more sense. Because for me, that worked so well in Throne yeah. of Blood, where it's right after she has a stillbirth. And suddenly she feels everything is slipping away from her grasp and can't cope with that. And there's such a trauma that she's sort of coming to terms with the evil that she is doing in her life. And that's what causes her to go mad and and try to wash the invisible blood off of her hands, the metaphorical blood on her hands. And it works so well. And that sort of goes back to the, the, the concept of water, of trying to wash away your sins, which is interesting because – in that scene, she's she has this bowl and she's like washing her hands and you don't really see anything. She, her hands are completely in this bowl. And then she like lifts her hands up and there's no water there. She's just like imaginary scrubbing her hands and using water to like pour over her hands. But there's no water there. So it works so well to really illustrate where this woman has come to be at this point. Definitely. And it's like and it's I, I agree. Like I think in Throat of Blood. Um, I mean, we already talked about how that that works a bit better, but um, yeah, the idea of in- introducing a stillbirth into a Macbeth story like that adds a completely different layer to the to the story. But just as just as I mean, you have two older people, so in that sense, maybe there's a bit of a similarity there where they take something that's not necessarily in Shakespeare's um, writing, but they've they've added kind of an extra layer onto it of a hundreds and hundreds year old play they're still able to add extra layers onto it which is pretty cool yeah do you have any uh differences you want to bring up um one thing that i i think is worth mentioning and um it's sebastian pointed it out himself too it's about um the use of denzel washington as uh as macbeth whereas like in kurosawa's uh, throne of blood it's set in Japan uh, during the samurai time, the feudal era. So it the whole cast is Japanese, of course. Um, and even though Cohen's version doesn't necessarily imprint a year onto it, you can assume it's kind of the middle agey type time in Scotland. And yet you have uh, Denzel Washington, a black man, but also you have two Americans doing it as well. Like it is meant to be Scottish. They don't say that they're not in Scotland, like they're in Scotland, but they're using their American accents. They're not even doing the kind of the weird British accent that they just attribute to the entire um, of the UK. 
So I, it's an interesting difference and change that Cohen makes to the play, which is introducing a bit more diversity to the cast without any explanation for it either. Um, whereas Kurosawa is a bit more, uh, you can call it accurate if you want, um, but you can also just say he's going a lot more with uh, the the period of the time and and following along with that. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting because for for a few different reasons. First, talking about Throne of Blood, you know, you've got Akira Kurosawa, a Japanese filmmaker, filming a movie in Japan in the Japanese language. It makes sense to use all Japanese actors, and it's not like Kurosawa would like famously cast an American or a Brit in a, in his movies. Use <laughs> what was around him, and that was Japanese casts. And so it made sense that he would make a movie about Japan and it'd be all Japanese actors performing that. And yeah, I, I'll, I'll sort of read out what Sebastian uh, sent in as well, just to sort of uh, bring his point to it. Um, he says, Kurosawa appears to create the potential for, for historical accurate, accuracy by building an all-Japanese cast set in a time of Japanese racial homogeny. Cohen employs a fascinating yet inexplicit racial binary between black and white cast members during a time and place in history when the film's racial diversity would be considered, in quotes, inaccurate or implausible. And so, yeah, it's not just Denzel Washington. You also have Corey Hawkins, who plays Macduff, Mm -hmm. Moses Ingram, who plays Lady Macduff, and a few other actors playing smaller parts as well, people of color. And we get this really interesting mix where you have an interracial couple as a lead if Denzel and Francis and then you also have other people of color in different parts for the most part playing um you know uh, black families with black children and things like that so we we get a nice interesting mix and it sort of feels like we're at the time now if if you were to go to the globe or to Stratford to see a show or Shaw festival also in Ontario where you were to see one of these classics, they really are doing their best to do uh, race blind casting. And that's the sense of, you know, we get it. We know Macbeth is a Scottish person and, you know, he's probably a white person based on Shakespeare's historical accuracy. If they're, if they're doing it that way, but like also who cares if they're not a white person sort of thing, it could be anyone as long as the actor is able to, bring to life this role. And so I think what Cohen does with this is I look at the idea of, you know, you know, close your eyes. You're like, all right, here's this movie coming out. Joel Cohen is doing an adaptation of Macbeth and he's going to cast Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand. I heard that the first time I was like, that sounds amazing. I didn't think about how, wait, no, Macbeth is a Scottish person, which means they'll probably, they probably should be a ginger, a white ginger person or whatever, (laughs) like stereotype you want to use. I hear that and I think Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Ooh, I like that idea. Denzel always brings a ton of intensity. He's going to be able to bring to life this character who is, you know, this middling sort of general who ends up rising to power and gets a little too power hungry. And he's married to Francis McDormand, who's able to push him further and make him commit acts of murder in order to realize this goal of ruling the country. I think those two actors, they're going to work perfectly together. They're both so... They, they know how to be over the top. They know how to, how to be subtle. They know how to bring intensity, quietness. They, they've, you know, you're talking about some of the greatest actors working today. I would list Denzel and Francis among that. And so the idea of it being an interracial couple is so fascinating where Hello? Cohen doesn't even acknowledge it. Like, w- would you say race is even acknowledged in, in this movie? 
Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's it's interesting using Denzel because it almost would have been incredibly unjust and unfair as an audience member to never get a Denzel Washington Macbeth just because he's black. Like he's one of the greatest actors of all time, I would say, and certainly one of the most celebrated actors of the current era. And a perfect Macbeth. Like I think it obviously shows in his performance that it's it's he's fantastic. So I I agree. Like I like that they don't ever mention anything about race because I mean if you went to if you go to the theater and you see different plays and musicals and things like that, you know, Broadway and the West End and all those places, they were kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to, you know, blind casting, if you will. They just put people in who you know, were good and who were talented and, and they fit the part regardless of what they look like. And it's for some reason in movies is where people have a bigger issue with it. It seems like it's people are more willing to point it out that, Hey, look at this. Like, that's kind of weird. Like why is, why is uh, Denzel a black man playing Macbeth? But truly like, you know, it, that's what would have been the case on on the stage. Like you would have had people not necessarily Scottish, definitely not Scottish, and not necessarily white performing it. But for some reason, when we talk about movies, it's a real sticking point for people. But just I just think you know what a tragedy <laughs> life would have been if we hadn't <laughs> if we hadn't seen Denzel as Macbeth, and the only reason we wouldn't have gotten this performance is because he's black. Like that's ridiculous, and he's tremendous at it. Like he's, for my mind, like that's one of my favorite interpretations of Macbeth that I've ever seen, um, and one of my favorite Denzel performances as well. I know it's a bit recent, so maybe there's some recency bias going on, but um, yeah, I I think it's phenomenal that Joel Cohen decided to go this way and not and just take the best people. But it's it's also great that he cast other black cast members as well not just Denzel alone and just a bunch of white people around Denzel, like that would have looked really weird. So I think, you know, when you, when you put Macduff is black as well, his family is black. It makes it not as jarring, I suppose, but I I've heard definitely heard comments from people being like, why is Macbeth black? And I'm just like, why not? (laughs) You know, like that's kind of, that's kind of the response is why not? And uh, yeah, but I thank God that Joel Cohen decided to go this way because, um, I think we're all better for seeing Denzel as Macbeth because he is tremendous in this and he would get my vote in the Academy Awards. Just saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I definitely think if your reaction to the concept of Denzel Washington, Washington has been cast to play Macbeth. If your reaction is basically anything other than, wow, I bet he'll be really good in that. (laughs) And isn't. And instead your reaction is something along the lines of, but wait, Denzel is black. Why is he playing Macbeth? I think you have some bigger issues to, that you need to deal with, with your racism, probably. <laughs> probably. Oh, just a little bit, just a smidge of it. Yeah. Uh, I was, I, one of the things I really want to have Sebastian on to talk about is, is Sebastian, you know, is a good friend of mine. He's, he's also half Jamaican, half German, and he has played numerous Shakespearean plays in Stratford, including the last thing he worked on was he was in The Tempest. And he did a great job in that. And I'm so happy that like that the people who, who cast plays at Stratford weren't worrying about, you know, quote unquote, racial authenticity in order to portray these instead working to just get the best actors they could, which Sebastian is someone that absolutely is. And I saw him play in the Tempest and he absolutely crushed it. So I was so happy about that. 
Uh, but yeah, it, it's sort of interesting. You know, we're talking about his concept of inaccurate or implausible uh, for the time period that Macbeth would take place in. And it's one of those things where it's like, obviously, you know, black people were in Scotland and they were across the United Kingdom, but, you know, there wasn't a black Scottish king. So that's where the sort of inaccurateness would probably come up if some people decide that they need to be racial purists or whatever nonsense term that they would have. When in reality, it's a friggin' story. It's like anytime people get mad when, you know, um, a character is a gender reversed cast or race reversed cast or things like that, where it's just like, who cares? Like, you know, just enjoy whatever the production is. And there's probably a reason that makes it more interesting that they're changing it up in the first place. Like people need to chill, especially when it's uh, made up characters to begin with. And I would also say in Macbeth, I mean, there's three witches. So. We're we're talking about realism here. So (laughs) let's let's be real now. Like it's not, I think if we can accept that witches are in this world, I think Macbeth can be black as well. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm so sad that we're not doing a full on review because I just want to praise Captain Hunter in Tragedy Macbeth for playing the witches, which might be one of the finest supporting roles of the past year. She was so damn good in that part of, being so unique with her her body movement and her voices and all that sort of stuff. And I just loved it. It's so like, so the screening I went to, there was a Q and a with um, Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen afterwards. And they were talking about Catherine Hunter and they were saying like American audiences, like this side of the pond, we, most people don't know who she is unless you're really into theater. Like, especially if maybe if you were, you go to England a lot, like London a lot to do theater, but like she's been a, um incredibly renowned stage actress in the West end in London for a very long time. And so it's like, we're just catching up with her kind of thing. And this is our introduction to her is like uh for, from you know, mass audiences is the introduction to her. But yeah, I completely agree. She's amazing. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, and, that, and that's sort of like the Cohen thing again, that they are so good at casting their supporting roles where they're, they're so memorable. And, you know, you talk about Catherine Hunter as the witches or um, Alex Hassel, who played Ross or mm-hmm. Harry Melling as Malcolm, Brendan Gleeson as Duncan, all this sort of stuff where you get these really great actors who are only in a couple scenes, but every time they're on screen, they just absolutely own their presence. I would love a movie between Brendan Gleeson and Denzel Washington. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> like a buddy yes. cop movie, maybe, or something like that. I would totally go be down for that. <laughs> a sequel to In Bruges? Yes. With oh, my God. Girls, Denzel. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only. Uh, all right. Do you have any other uh, similar or sorry, differences you want to talk about? No, I think that we we covered the good gamut here, and I think that – you know, I, I would say I'm not an expert on Shakespeare. I don't think that you would consider yourself one either. I feel like we, we covered this one pretty well, if, if I may say so myself. Yeah, it was it was a, a really fun one. And it was it was a sort of episode where ever since uh, this was announced, I've been kind of dreaming of doing <laughs> this uh, as a as a make remake because I thought it would make really good fodder for a show and have a really good discussion. So I'm really happy we were able to do it. I'm sorry, Sebastian, I, if you're listening to this, that you weren't able to come on. I hope we did it justice for you. And maybe when we get around to the A24 retrospective of this movie in like three or four years, we'll, we'll have <laughs> you on for that. And you can uh, and you can correct us for all of our mistakes that we may have made. Okay. 
was gonna say he's probably listening just to be like god they missed the point completely didn't they <laughs> taking all the notes he's gonna send me a, a very long essay so i apologize in advance <laughs> well rachel where can listeners find more of your work and you uh, you can go to rachelkh.com. Um, my socials are underscore rachelkh. I'm trying to think of what new work I have. I did a review for Cosmic Dawn, which is a Canadian sci-fi movie. So always happy to support Canadian filmmakers. Um, but also I did a review for Tragedy of Macbeth, which is with Exclaim. So you can always go check that out too. Yes, I'll make sure that is linked in the show notes. I believe I, I previously linked it there, but because this is relevant for this as well i'll link it again so people can check it out and read your excellent review of that movie um so you can also follow this show on instagram twitter and facebook at contrazoom pod and if you have seen throne of blood or tragedy of Macbeth, let us know your thoughts of uh, these two movies and how they adapted shakespeare send an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com And be prepared for lots of Oscar content in the coming weeks. We've got lots of fun stuff with that. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there too. Thanks for checking us out.